That is a blood moon. No, it isn't. It's just the Rob and Caleb show. Please hang up and try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name... We're live. That's right. My name is Caleb Hegg. And with me as always, Rob Van Hoff. What up and shalom, Rob? Hey, loud mouth. (laughs) See, I can call you that without getting in trouble. That's right. Uh, So, what up and shalom to everyone in our chat room. It's very exciting to have a chat room. I have another computer right next to me now. So now I actually have three screens to look at. And we, to be honest with you, we have like way more people in the chat room than I ever thought we were going to have in the chat room, which is exciting. Okay. We, we, we have to train people. So somewhere, you guys, you online chatters, you in the message board, you can roll dice. So I don't know. You have to like <laughs> click your name on the online user tab and there's a way to roll dice. At certain times in our broadcast, we might say first person to roll like <laughs> a five or something. And so everybody can roll and, and it'll just be whoever clocks the first uh, thing. And then we might give you a call out or a uh, oh, no. prize of some sort. Right? <laughs> we're, we're we just have, want to make use of this technology. We're, yeah, we're going to have to figure out, we're going to have to figure out some kind of game with that. Well, hey, we're very excited to be live, and I know for a lot of our listeners, it's like nothing big because they're just going to listen to the the broadcast as if it were a podcast on Thursday or, you know, some other time that it airs. Uh, but for us, it's pretty exciting. Uh, broadcasting live from Washington State, and we got people from all over the world listening to us right now. And, uh, oh, look at that. Andre Felipe just... They're uh, already rolling dice. They're, they're rolling dice right now on the chat room. Cool. Okay. It's just to get you ready. That, it's just to warm you up. <laughs> you guys can, if, if you're not in the chat room already, if you're listening to this live and you're not in the chat room, then you can uh, go to tor- uh, trradio.com and then click on broadcast. Go down to the Rob and Caleb show. And right there, you will see a chat room. You can join the conversation with all of our friends online. And you can, um, maybe every once in a while, if there's a question or something, if we keep an eye on the chat room, that's really going to be the the, <laughs> the defining point. Uh, mostly it's for you guys to be able to chat back and forth and to bring up um, Bible verses or whatever you want to, bring up points and discuss among yourselves. But we'll keep an eye on the chat room as well. And if there's some really good points, then we'll uh, we'll bring them up. Anyway, so another thing that I wanted to mention is, as I said last week, we got... Uh, Stickers in, and we got uh, the Robin Caleb show, Tipping Sacred Cows, every Thursday. And then we got I'm one of the 36. We still have stickers left, and uh, you can receive a sticker for total, totally for free by writing me an email, chegg at torresource.com. And in the uh, subject part, put sticker, and then just tell me which one you want. You can, I think on our Facebook page, we put Tipping Sacred Cows was number one, and I'm one of the 36 is number two. So just let us know which one you want, and we'll send it out to you, as long as we have your address. All right, well, uh, how you been, Rob? Anything new in life? You know, it's 
it's house cleaning season, as you know. Passover is coming up. Passover. Yeah. My wife's got this huge honeydew list. So I've been happily with a smile doing all, you know, cleaning out this and that. You know those, we you know those ceiling, ceiling fans? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nice. That's what I've been doing. I, I, it's clean, though. It's nice. Well, uh, it is that season, isn't it? It's Passover. And what does that mean? It means that uh, since it's 2015, well, actually, uh, well, blood moons is what it means. But before we get to that, I want to actually talk about something else. I want to talk about something that we talked about last week. Well, hang on just a sec. Let me get back to my... Uh, okay. So, I got some clips here. Um, somebody... Someone, first of all, commented on our show from last week, and they said, last week we talked, uh, what did we talk? We talked about the location of the temple, okay? And there were people who were saying that the temple was actually over in the city of David and not where the Temple Mount is, okay? And so we also laid out seven rules or seven, seven red flags that uh, we look for when we're... Uh, when we're listening to a new teaching or something like that. Well, we had some interaction on that, which was actually quite interesting because one person disagreed with one of the seven laws. And we expect people will disagree with our seven laws or our seven red flags. Um, But basically, these are things that we find to be... We take a, a historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible... And so these are seven things that we wrote down that we thought were uh, musts when it comes to our interpretation, uh, how we interpret things. The one that uh, someone, basically, basically there's this guy, he's not very kind to us most of the time. He, uh, I deleted all of his comments and per- perhaps I shouldn't have, but I deleted them because they were rude and they weren't very constructive. And he had taken exception to one of the rules and now I wish that I wouldn't have deleted this so I could quote him. But basically what he said was, you guys aren't scholars. You know, you, you tout yourself as scholars all the time, but you're not scholars and you don't know what in the world you're talking about. He said, I almost fell off my chair laughing and in disbelief when you said that, the, that, uh, we couldn't read the rabbis into the first century. He said that the Mishnah was written in the second, in, uh, the third century, two hundreds, I mean the two hundreds AD and that, uh, even though it was written then, it's oral tradition that goes back to at least 200 years before the time of the Messiah. So that was, that was his, that's what he took exception to was uh, our rule number five or our flag number five is are they using anachronistic arguments? Here's the problem with, with this theory that <laughs> the rabbis go back 200 years before the time of the Messiah or all the way back to Sinai. The problem is who says that they did that? Who says that they go back that far? That oral tradition goes back that far? They say it. The rabbis are the ones who say it. Are you saying I can't testify about myself, Caleb? <laughs> are you are you going to uh, razz me? Well, yeah. You know. If we're in a court of law, how do we establish a matter? Yeah, exactly, by three or four witnesses. But the all the witnesses are the ones that are saying of the Mishnah are the ones that are saying that they that they are that their word goes back that far. They're testifying of, their, of themselves. You're absolutely right. 
Um, so I don't know. I, I just, you can't say, oh, well, I can't say, yeah, I said this and it goes back 300 years. And then everybody you just, have to believe me because I tell you. Yeah, you, you have to believe me because I tell you. It just doesn't work like that. Um, so we don't have any other sources that say, yeah, this goes all the way back to, you know, 200 years before the time of the Messiah. It's not, that's not a valid argument. You can't use that argument. So anyway, uh, he commented, I deleted his comments, uh, because he, he wasn't, he, he doesn't want to have a conversation. What he wants to do is he wants to try to tick us off. And yeah, that's oh. not to say what we're saying about the Mishnah or any, you know, the Mishnah is like, you know, we were not going to treat that any different than we would treat Josephus or, you know this or that text from the Dead Sea Scrolls or Philo. These are, but we understand, we, we want to understand where they were written. We want to understand who wrote them, what language did they use. You know, we want to give locality to our sources. We don't want to take the Talmud. The Talmud wasn't written to be a background for the first century. So if I take, if I, you know, comb through the Talmud looking for secrets to the life of Yeshua, I'm going to distort the intent of those who compiled the Talmud. The, those who compiled the Talmud weren't interested <laughs> in that. They okay. were interested in, the, in what their issues were. I want to bring up, I want to bring up our first, hang on just a second, I want to bring up our first uh, comment from the chat room, okay? Lois Morgan says, Yeshua said, if you testify of yourself, you testify, you, uh, your testimony is false. Thank you, Lois Morgan. Anyway, thank you. Well, for the idea is, it, you know, build on, <laughs> you know, it says, the Torah says we need two or three witnesses for to establish a matter, right? And, of course, the Torah specifically is talking about in a capital case, you know, death penalty. But the, the, the principle is there. The principle is don't just believe something because somebody tells you. That's like, I mean, then gossip would be, how would we ever discern, you know? Why does it say wisdom is in a multitude of counsel? You know, we need to take these principles. And so to be honest, to use just weights and measures, we, we can look at the Mishnah, then we can look at, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus and the Gospels and maybe, you know, other writings from, from the, you know, before the, I'm saying, you know, between the temple times, if you want to put it that way, uh, or early Second Temple period. And See if there's trends, if there's Jewish cultural truths that we can see because they share these things. Then we then we have some something to work with. But uh, we want to be careful. You know, the Mishnah is not scripture, and I know there are friends of ours in the Body of Messiah who believe in oral Torah that it's authoritative, that it's from God. And that's very problematic, and I, I do not believe that. It's not scripture. The Talmud is not scripture. Well, and one of the things that I always have to remind myself of, and you can disagree with this if you want to. I mean, people out there can disagree with this if, if they want to or not. But the rabbis made stuff up, and they made stuff up to be able to have more authority. Nothing gives a story weight by saying that it goes all the way back to Moses. If Did you I'm, see that in the Talmud it says like Moses was like 10 cubits tall or 15, yes. <laughs> 15 cubits tall? It says that a couple times. Uh, I mean, if we... It, should we take that and say, oh, Moses was a giant? He was like, he, he was taller than Goliath or than the king of Bashan, you know? I mean, it's, it, 
Okay, with all that in mind, okay. with all that in mind, okay, let's listen. This to, really doesn't have anything to do with our show, does it? No. Well, kind of. Okay, with all that in mind, let's listen. So, a different person put a link on our show last week. They're trying to prove that the temple is in the city of David, and this is the. Now, I kind of edited this clip a little bit. By the way, if you want to, now another new thing that we implemented is show notes. So, if you want show notes, uh, you can find all of our like every single clip that I use today. Uh, there is a URL in like you can uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can go and you can click it. If you want to see the whole context of what people are saying or if you want to listen to the entire teaching, you can go to the show notes. OK, and you can find those show notes on the exact same page as the chat, which is Torah resource uh, com. Then go to broadcast uh, Robin Caleb show and you'll find them on that page. OK, so listen to what this this uh, person put as a link to prove disprove us uh, that the temple is actually in the city of David. Here you go. Where is the real Temple Mount? Two great Hebrew sages give us the answer. Rabbi Moses ben Maimon, Maimonides, 1135-1204. Rabbi David Kimchi, Radak, 1160-1235. Maimonides quote, As far as the sanctuary in Jerusalem were concerned, the first sanctification by King Solomon hallowed them for all time to come. Wherefrom the sages have averred, even though they are desolate at the time of Maimonides, the sanctuaries retain their pristine holiness. Now, just as we are obliged to keep the Sabbath for all time to come, so must we reverence the sanctuary, or the temple, for all time to come. For even though it is in ruins, its sanctity endures. Okay, now he's going to keep going here, and he's going to quote the next rabbi. Uh, That might not seem that relevant, okay? But he, he ties it in. And Radak's quote, and the temple is still in ruins in that the temple site was never built on by the nations. Commentary on Isaiah 6410. Here is a startling fact. By the time these revered sages made these statements, the Dome of the Rock Mosque had been in existence for about 500 years. The mosque was certainly not in ruins. This leads us to one unavoidable conclusion. The actual site of the Temple Mount could not be where the Dome of the Rock Mosque stands today. Okay, there's several problems with this with this sound clip, okay? Number one, basically, I, I think everybody gets it, but basically what he's saying is th- these, two, these two rabbis are saying that... Uh, the time that they're there, the where the temple stood, has not been defiled, and it hasn't been defiled by having a new something built over it that's not a new temple. Okay, that's what they're saying. And what this person's point is, he's making, is that the mosque was was standing. These rabbis were in the late 1100s, so 12th century, late 12th century. Wait, these are great Hebrew sages. Yes. No. Great sages. Great yeah. sages, yes. Ding. That's when we want to. <laughs> uh, let me get my bell here. All right, here you okay, go. That's okay. Oh, I, I thought you were going <laughs> to. Okay, so here's, here's, there's two issues with this. First of all, there are multiple and multiple ideas of where the temple stood on the Temple Mount. Just because the mosque is standing on the Temple Mount does not mean it's standing where the temple actually was. They say that the Holy of Holies was, uh, many people say that the Holy of Holies is not where the mosque was. Another problem is, is that how did the, how did those rabbis know where the temple wa- was, or the, the temple was on the Temple Mount? 
They didn't. They're a thousand years after the temple stood. Any thoughts on this, Rob? Oral tradition. Oral tradition. Yeah. I mean, uh, he quotes two medieval rabbis, Rambam, no, Rambam, right? <laughs> Ramonides, and Rada, David. I'm glad he didn't say kimchi. My wife <laughs> likes to eat kimchi. It's kimchi. He actually said correctly kimchi. It's got a chet in there. But, yeah, I mean, these guys were heirs to Torah Shabbat pay oral Torah, and they knew from their rabbis, who knew from their rabbis, who knew from their rabbis, all the way back. So why not? Why don't we just take, why don't we just build on what Rambam says? Not only that, but the Himki guy, he's doing a midrash on, or he's doing a, he's, he's teaching on Isaiah. And so I think that he's, I haven't gone in and read the text, but I would have to read the text. I think he's making a bigger point here. I think that yeah, there's that, that a, an ulterior it, motive. We, we, we can't use, I was being, I was exaggerating, right? Yeah, you know, of course. We can't, we can't use, sure, we'll say, okay, thank you, noted. <laughs> you know, Rambam said this, okay, noted. Next. That doesn't mean we build on it. Now, he does show that there's different opinion, you know, but... It just seems to me that from the archaeological evidence and from the, from the arguments that the archaeologists have made about the archaeology of the Temple Mount, that this other side, this side that's saying that the temple was down in the, in the city of David, they need to answer some questions, which they haven't answered. That's a well, problem. I think that there could be an interest here, particularly in medieval times, those rabbis, the rabbis that ever even went to Jerusalem, I don't even know, you know, I don't remember if Rambam ever went to Jerusalem personally. I know he was in Egypt and in Spain, but he certainly wouldn't have had access to the Temple Mount. And the idea of a Muslim uh, worship house being built on that would have been very, very uh, devastating to conceive of, like, how could, you know, how could God let this happen? You know, and so trying to find a way around it would serve that purpose. Like just to trying to, to explain away. Yeah, explain away the, the mosque. Explain away what we call yeah, theodicy, right? How, how does God allow such an evil thing? Well, one way is to say, well, actually, is to teach people that where the Muslims built their thing isn't really the Temple Mount. So it's not really. The Holy of Holies wasn't right there, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so there, you could see that there, there, there are other interests besides, quote, truth. Just dealing with the difficulties of the world, you know, and, and the, the problem, you know, what? No doubt. So, okay. anyway. Okay, let's move on. Uh, so, as we said, Passover's coming up. And booyah. With, booyah. And with Passover coming up in 2015, of course the whole hype about the blood moons, quote-unquote, and I'm using quote marks here because they're not... I, I was going to pull another clip. Uh, I, I had a clip of, who was it? Um, Haggy saying, oh, no, actually, check this out. So I'm preparing for I'm preparing for this show. And... Uh, Which is rare. <laughs> I'm preparing no, for this show, and I get this email. Like, I have all my clips pulled and everything. This is where this was. I have... 
all my clips pulled and everything. And I, all of a sudden, at the end of the day, I'm just about to leave. And I get this email from a Rabbi Charlie Edwards. I don't know who that is. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I've met him before. I don't know. Uh, but he, he writes this email. It's got to be three pages long. And it's all about the blood moons. And he says in here, uh, where is it? He says, these are, these are known, these eclipses are known as the, or are called the blood moons. Well, they're not called the blood moons by anybody else except for the people who believe that they're blood moons. I just thought it was interesting that like we're preparing, I'm preparing for this show, you know, and all of a sudden this guy writes this expose on the blood moons. So let's use the seven red flags to test out the blood moon theory. If you don't know what the blood moon theory is, basically in Joel, and for those of you who have the show notes, I have all of these scripture verses here. I also have a bunch of links too. But So in Joel uh, 2.31, he says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, And then it's, it's cited. They cite it again in Acts 2.20. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So from this, people now take these lunar eclipses that are happening. And these are actually now, okay, maybe I should, let's let, let's let Mark Biltz uh, start us off here. Actually, so much of this is attributed to Heggy, John Heggy, uh, who's a Christian pastor. So if you're Christian or Messianic, it doesn't really matter. You've probably heard about the blood moons. But Heggy was not the first one to come up with this. In fact, I would say that he pretty much ripped it off. And he ripped it off of a guy named Mark Biltz. Mark Biltz is a gentleman here in the Tacoma area. He runs a ministry and a congregation here in Tacoma. And it's quite large, actually. I know many people who go to his congregation. And he's a very nice guy. But he was he came out with this whole blood moon theory thing. And actually, he didn't start it either. There was another guy here in the Tacoma area many years ago, back in like 1996. And his name was Greg Killian. I have a link for everyone in the show notes if you want a link for it. Greg Killian did a... He has a different name now. He changed his name as, you know, once he became a messianic rabbi he changed his name to something else but uh killian used to go to the congregation that i go to way back in the day when i was like seven or eight years old and in 1996 he wrote this uh article i've given you the article there on the show notes and basically he talks about the blood moons way back then and so Biltz didn't really come up with this either so is there a what is it with tacoma and heresies you know, I mean, Torah resource. <laughs> I wouldn't call the blood moons heresies. If you believe in the blood moon, if you believe the, that these lunar eclipses coming up are the blood moons, okay, fair enough. You know, that's your prerogative. You can do, you can believe that. That's not a heresy. I, I, I don't buy it. Full disclosure, I don't buy it. But I was joking about heresies. Uh huh. Well, I'll tell you what, though, there is a significant amount of messianics in the Tacoma area. There's a lot of messianic congregations, and in Washington in general. I would say that we have more than, than most states. I can pretty much walk to a, like, I can, anywhere in Tacoma, if I'm anywhere in Tacoma, 
There is a Messianic synagogue within a 10-minute drive. They don't all have their heads on straight, but there's a Messianic congregation close. Okay. So let's start with Biltz, okay? So Mark Biltz is really the guy who came out and... And where did I get this clip? Of course, our good friend Sid Roth. Um, <laughs> the Tacoma Heresy Connection. <laughs> I see the book deal. Thank you, Adam. Um, okay, so let's <laughs> let's start with uh, let's start with Biltz. Here you go. I want to make sure I got the right clip here. Yes, I do. Okay, and give me just a second here. I'm opening a new program. There we go. Here we go. Cricket sounds. And I got to thinking about the Bible verses, you know, with the, the moon turning to blood and the sun to sackcloth. And so what did I do? I, I said, we'll see if there's any interesting eclipses coming up. And so I looked and I saw there, there were these four total lunar eclipses in a row. And I thought, well, how often does that happen? And so I was going to NASA's website, and I saw it didn't happen at all in the 1800s, didn't happen in the 1700s, didn't happen in the 1600s. So it's pretty rare. It's very, as a matter of fact, after my research, I found it has only happened eight times in the last 2,000 years that these have fallen on the biblical feast days. (laughs) Sid. Oh, Sid. That's rare. Um, so, okay. So what he says is that the, the, is he's talking about these lunar eclipses. And basically what happens is the earth comes in between the moon and the sun and the light coming around the earth from the sun bounces off of the moon and it gives it this red hue. Okay. And that's why it's it appears red. Okay. Um, this from answers in Genesis last year, when we talked about blood moons, I, we use this, uh, we use this article, I think almost exclusively. Well, I have one quote from it. I'm going to use it right here. Total lunar eclipses aren't that unusual. There will be 85 total lunar eclipses in the 21st century. The greatest length of time between two consecutive total lunar eclipses is only three years. In between these droughts will be occurrences of three or even four total lunar eclipses, each separated by about six months. A little more than half the Earth's surface can witness at least a portion of a particular eclipse. Remember that. So from any given location, total lunar eclipses aren't quite as common as these statistics might suggest. That's not what Biltz is talking about, though. Let's give Biltz credit where credit is due. What Biltz is pointing out is four total lunar eclipses in a row that all fall on biblical holidays. That is, that is, not, rare, or that is not common. That's rare. I'll give him that. And I think, I think there's been seven, seven since the time of Yeshua. And, and they say that uh, one happens during the time of Yeshua, like at his execution. Because the, there was one that happened uh, in 32 and 33. So, you know, that might be right. If, it depends where you put the, the execution of the Messiah. Um, you know, what Passover he was on. And... and you can't be dogmatic about that, though. It can, the, you know, the time of the, the Messiah, his death could slide, you know, five years in either direction. You think I'm off on that, Rob? You know, I haven't looked into all that. I, I just looked into the more recent ones, the blood moons, in terms of the first century. I don't know. Okay, so the first blood moon didn't even It happen. does seem to think, I, going from Scripture, from Acts 2... It does seem that Kepha or Peter 
when he's preaching that he's associating the prophecy of Joel with Yeshua's, you know, with Yeshua's crucifixion. Okay, but even, okay, look, the, the point is, is that it seems like there was this earthquake. It seems like the, you know, there was darkness all over the earth. That's not a, that's not a blood moon and not a solar eclipse either. Right? It's something supernatural happened when the Messiah died. Well, and the, the idea of blood moon, the scriptures do not tell us what a moon turning to blood means. You know, it's, it's other people saying, oh, that means the eclipse. It's like, okay. And then they want to build, take that assumption and build on it and then take this phrase moon turned to blood out of the context of all these other things that are happening simultaneously and making a big whoop-de-doo about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what it seems like to me. Okay, it seems so- like a sensationalist marketing. That's what it seems like to me. Okay. Um, let's keep going. I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on the chat room, but I'll let, I'll let other people uh, deal with that for right now. Okay, so um, I want to make a couple of points about the blood moons. Okay? The first blood moon in this four set, Okay, which was supposed to start last Passover. Last Passover was like the first one. And the next one was at Sukkot. And then the next one was is supposed to be on the night of the 4th. And then the next one will be next Sukkot. Okay? The first one was not on the first night of Passover. Everybody says, oh, it was the first night of Passover. No, it wasn't. In 2014, the 14th of Nisan happened to fall on the 14th of April. The festival started on April 13th at sundown. So April 13th at sundown, boom, there was the, that's when, that's when Passover started. No, April. I'm sorry. April 13th. Yeah. April. Nissan. Yeah. Yeah. But Nissan 14th. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, 14th to the 15th, right? Right. Okay. Am I off? Maybe I'm off anyway. So the point, uh, even this, this year though, the same thing happens. It's off by, it's off by a, a, uh, it's off by an evening. So in other words, we start on the we start Passover this year on the third. April third, the night of the third. It's a Friday night. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the four, the fourteenth is what we would call like a Friday, basically. Yeah, exactly. I know they don't they're not exactly coextensive, but but, the, what, but the, in the West they call Friday it is basically Nissan fourteen. When the sun goes down we transition into Nissan 15, which is now into, technically we're in Shabbat now. Yeah, and so the lunar eclipse doesn't happen until Saturday night. Even more so, last year at Sukkot, it wasn't even on Sukkot. The eighth day of Sukkot had come and gone. It was that evening. So it wasn't even on the festival. Okay, the four blood moons can't be seen from Israel. You would think that the blood moons, the quote blood moons, would be seen from Israel. They're not. Uh, I think one of them was for like two minutes in the morning one time. There will be a great earthquake. Stars will go dark and fall and great darkness will uh, be over the entire earth. Okay. Now, that's an interesting point. One of the things that the, that the people, the proponents of this whole blood moon thing, you know, people just take this, just take this and eat it up. But uh, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of... Uh, pushback. Nobody's asked them about like earthquakes or stars going dark or falling. In Joel 2, 3, it says the earthquakes before them 
and the stars withdraw their shining. Revelation 6, 12 through 13, there was a great earthquake and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Matthew 24, 29, and the stars will fall from heaven. Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. So this is talking about the same, you know, the same, it seems like the same events. It says, uh, I will cover the heavens and make their st- make the stars dark. Then later on in that same verse, he says, all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land. So it that doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like a, a solar eclipse. That sounds like everything's dark and the stars go dark and everything. But Biltz and Hagee, these guys don't want to, you know, they don't want to have to talk about that. Okay, so let's move on to another clip. This guy, he kind of explains, this guy's kind of debunking, if you will, uh, the whole Blood Moons thing. Listen to what he says, though. He kind of sets this up and explains all this, I think, pretty well. Cross-referencing these dates with Jewish historical events... Biltz claimed the following connections between these tetrads and significant events in Jewish history. For example, he says that the tetrad that occurred in 1493 through 1494 corresponded with the Spanish Inquisition. He says the tetrad that occurred in 1949 through 1950 corresponded with the 1948 War of Independence. And he says that the tetrad that occurred in 1967 through 1968 corresponded with the Six-Day War. Biltz and John Hagee suggest that because, according to this model, significant events in Jewish history have transpired around the time of Blood Moon Tetrads, the upcoming Blood Moon Tetrad of 2014 and 2015 will herald significant events related to biblical prophecy, citing that these eclipses are fulfilling the sun, moon, and star signs in the Bible. The question is, how does this theory bear up against biblical scrutiny and common sense? Okay, so basically, Biltz, here's one of the things that Biltz Biltz, uh, kind of dropped the ball on. He doesn't explain to anyone how these, what, like these huge events that happen at blood moons, uh, how they line up. He says that the Spanish Inquisition was one of them. He says that uh, Israel becoming a state is one of them. But wait a minute. The Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. Do you realize how big of a span of time that was? Yeah, okay. Hang on. We're getting to that. But oh, but, okay. but first, but first, let's, I mean, so the Spanish Inquisition seems like a bad thing for the Jews. Israel becoming a state seems like a good thing for the Jews, right? So what is it? Is God giving us good signs or bad signs? Well, Hagee kind of picks up the, the pieces where, where Biltz drops them. Hagee states that the blood moon signal something that starts as a tragedy but turns to be a blessing for the Jews. Okay, so I got a bunch of clips here. Let's listen to, okay, let's listen to Biltz first. Out it happened during the Inquisition, 1492, when Columbus sails the ocean blue. Most- now, why was that? Now, that was pretty bad for us Jewish people because we Jews were, were literally left uh, if we didn't leave, we'd be murdered. So it wasn't too good for us Jewish people, but it had an effect on the world. What was well, that? Well, sure it did, because they expelled all the Jews on the ninth of Av, and also in Portugal in 1493-1494, what happens... King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella are taking all the Jewish wealth, but that is what helped finance the finding of the New World and all the Jews coming over to America. So, in your opinion, if the Jews hadn't been expelled and Christopher Columbus, who is Jewish, and you you told me also there were a number of his crew that were Jewish. Why? Because they had to leave Spain. 
they might not have founded America. That's right. That's right. Okay, so <laughs> let's stop it right there. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this. Um, Oy vey. Yeah, so I don't know where to start with this. It, it's This sounds a little sensational to me right now. And that's one of our, uh, you know... That's one of our red flags, is that it sounds sensational. Um, first of all, the Spanish Inquisition, so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people died. Now, Biltz is suggesting that because the, there were Jews on the, on the ships that came to America, that that made up for the thousands of lives that died. Like a handful of Jews that came over on the ships... All of a sudden, that that's gonna you know that's gonna make the difference. That makes it all worth it. I don't I don't understand what the point is. But then again, once again, here comes Heggy. Heggy comes in to save the day, and let's listen to what Heggy has to say. Now, listen to the end of this clip, Rob. This is this is interesting. Um, I don't even maybe I'm mishearing this quote. This is a this is about an hour and uh, a minute and twenty seconds. So, but stay tuned for the end of this clip. As you, you've said, we've only had blood moons about uh, four blood moons about three times over the past, I think, 520 years or so. And each time it seems that they coincide with events that have great significance for Israel and the Jewish people. Let's start with the blood moons of 1493 and 1494, that period. Yeah, Why were they so significant? Why was that a significant period in Jewish history when these blood moons, these four blood moons occurred? Okay. In that period of time, the Jewish people were expelled from the country of Spain. Uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, with the condolence of the Catholic Church, terminated the right of the Jewish people to live in Spain. They wrote this edict of expulsion and gave them 14 days. Okay, hang on just a sec. Before we go on, so he's talking about Spain. He's only talking about Spain here, right? So he's not talking about Jews all over the world. He's talking about Spain. To leave everything and get out of the country. They could only carry what they left. So the Jewish people were expelled. That was also the point in time where Jewish business leaders went to Christopher Columbus and gave him maps and money. And he left in the same year. And the next year, 1493, uh, 1492, they discovered America. Uh, which became the homeland of the Jewish people. Did you catch that? <laughs> that America? That's what he says. Hang on, let's, let's, let's listen to it again. Okay, everybody. <laughs> Here you go. Hear that, hear that quote is again. Covered America, uh, which became the homeland of the Jewish people. So, well, here's the other thing. Besides this, there are also there are many Jews elsewhere in the world. Not all the Jews were in. See, this is one of the the Jews from Spain. It makes it seem like like all the Jews were in Spain. Yeah, you exactly. Know? No, I, it, I totally it, agree with you. It's. Uh, I totally agree with you. It, yes, it, it, it doesn't. This is not to lessen, just to the the impact of or you know then the. Spanish Inquisition was a horrible thing, situation, yeah. But nevertheless, we can't overstate it either. And it just seems like everything's getting overstated. 
Like Columbus had to had to discover America because he was Jewish and many of his people were Jewish, and they had to leave. So they took a bunch of money from other Jews that funded their trip to America, and they founded America. That was the. It, I just. It's crazy. Hey, I, to me, this just shows that Heggie, I don't know what Heggie's theology is, but I have to assume now that from this last quote, he, he's a replacement the, theologian. Okay, He believes that the church replaced Israel. But what it sounds like from this last quote from Heggie, to me, what it sounds like, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but what it sounds like to me is that Heggie is saying that America has replaced Israel as the homeland. Yeah, it sounded that way. Except he's pro. Except he's pro state of Israel. He's so pro Israel, and that's the weird part is that Hagee's super pro Israel. So I don't understand this this quote. What's he saying? How did America become the homeland of the Jews? I, I that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And theologically, I don't think it holds any weight. Well, I, I, I mean, historically, of course, America has been, you know, a place for all sorts of immigrants to come, and the, and many Jews have come here and prospered. And but that's that's one thing. But yeah, his statement is. I wonder if you know if we you know cornered him on that. Maybe he would clarify for us. I don't know. I would say that I don't. I don't listen to John Hagen. I don't read any of his stuff. So I. I would say that 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 America is more the land of the Irish than it is the the homeland of the Jews. There were so many Irish people who came over here, right? This this land was like founded by by Irish people. Uh, I mean, not completely, obviously, I'm being facetious, but okay, so let's keep going. Hagee makes, uh, now, in this next, in this next uh, soundbite that I have, Hagee lets us know that God aligns everything, you know, the stars, the moon, everything, and he's, he makes it sound like God is very exact, okay? Which I, I agree with. God is very exact, right? Let's see here. What clip am I, am I looking for? 98. Okay. Listen to this. The sun and the moon and the earth are controlled by God Almighty. He is the one that's getting them in a direct alignment on a certain day at a certain time. But each time it's a Passover or Sukkot. Passover and Sukkot. And he does it two years Ding. in a row. <laughs> yeah. And every, every yeah. yes, every time this has happened in the past, it has been... A historical something that happened that changed the destiny of the world involving the Jewish people. So Marty tells us that uh, that Hagee is now super pro-Israel, but he used to be a huge proponent of replacement theology. Okay, good to know. Um, but oh, so in this last clip, basically what Hagee sounds to me like he's saying is that God is very exact. He's got all. He's got the stars. The moon, the sun, the earth, he's got it all working together, and that he's lining everything up with the festivals and everything. Okay, I'm, I certainly agree that the Almighty is just that, Almighty. Yes, he is doing all those things. There is no doubt in my mind. Okay, he's very exact. Listen to this clip. This I love. And, and this is what makes me, you know, these guys just peddle this stuff as if it's, and this goes back to what you said earlier. The, the Spanish Inquisition was this huge span of time. The first point. When reviewing the historical accuracy of Biltz's claim that Jewish history seems to converge with lunar eclipse tetrads that fall on Jewish feast days, 
we find that it's not very accurate at all. So the first thing that we need to do is examine Hagee and Bilch's assertion that these tetrads actually lined up with significant events at all. So often we simply take for granted that this is true, and as we will see, that would be a huge mistake. Did you know that there were actually two other tetrad events that fell on Jewish holidays that Biltz found in the NASA computers? Well, he did, but he doesn't like to say much about those because, even according to him, nothing significant happened on those two occasions. <laughs> Oops! Right there, that should give us pause. Okay, so how do we know that this upcoming tetrad in 2014-2015 won't be another dud like the other two that they don't like to mention? Based on these numbers, so far almost half, almost 50% of these tetrads on Jewish holidays don't mean a thing, even by their own admission. Another point is that the dates of the historical events for which these tetrads supposedly correlate do not seem to correlate very well at all to the dates of the tetrads themselves. For example, the Spanish Inquisition actually started some 15 years before Aha! the 1493-94 tetrad and ended roughly 350 years later. They try to give this some credibility by saying that what the tetrad is really connected with is the so-called Alhambra Decree issued on the 31st of March, 1492, which officially expelled the Jews from Spain. But even then, the first eclipse didn't occur until over a year later, and the last <laughs> eclipse over two years later. So unless you call being off by a year God's way of predicting something, then this isn't a match. Okay, so right there, I mean, Hagee is talking about how exact God is. You know, he's got it all, God's got it all lined up. I agree with him on that. But then he tries to say that all these align, but it's off by a year. How does that work? The next so-called match is supposed to be when Israel declared its independence in 1948 and won the war for independence the same year. And now this should be easy because, I mean, those, we have exact dates for all this, right? Specific exact dates. The dates of the 1949-1950 Tetrad, again, didn't occur until over a year later and didn't fall on any of the dates of Israel's victories or on the day that the UN recognized them as a state or any other significant date. <laughs> Trust me, if there was any significance to the actual dates of these Tetrads, you would have heard about it. But the best they can do is, as we will see in the next one, coming within 10 months of an event. So yeah, the last one they say occurred in conjunction with the Six-Day War. But in reality, it didn't start until 10 months after the war ended. And the last eclipse didn't occur until a full year after that. Again, these three obvious non-matches look even worse when you consider that they have already thrown two sets of historical tetrads in the trash because they couldn't find any historical events to match them with. So these three represent the best of the best, and that is pretty sad. So, I mean, basically what this guy, and you, once again, you can find this link, the link to this guy in, uh, in our show notes, but uh, basically what this guy is showing, no. They're not even, you know, Hagee says that God is exact, but according to Hagee, he's not that exact because these dates are so far off. And to me, that's, I mean, this isn't one of those things that gets me ticked off. You know, the, the blood moons, if you want to believe in the blood moons, that's fine. Hey, you know what? God can do whatever he wants. If one of these lunar eclipses happens to be a time when God starts something off, okay, fine. Um, but... What it sounds like to me is that Heggie and Biltz and all these guys, these are they're trying to pump s stuff up into something bigger than what it is. You know, they're trying to attribute things, uh, natural occurrences, to to God's miraculousness. Oh, it's a natural occurrence. It must be this miraculous thing that the Bible talks about. To me, that downplays it downplays 
the miraculous deeds that the Lord's going to do in the end times. You know, when the blood turns to moon and the sun is darkened and the stars are darkened and they start falling from the sky and the whole earth is filled with darkness, people are going to say there's something going on here. This is not cool. They're not going to be like, oh, it's so pretty. Look, look at the look at the lunar eclipse. It's so pretty. That's my personal opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is the lunar eclipse. I just don't, you know, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny, in my opinion. Rob? Yeah, I, I hear you. As a matter of fact, what I just posted on our chat room is the dates. I remember my son was taking a college course on astronomy, and he had to get this software package, and it was right, you know, a year and a half ago. And I remember looking at all these times, how they relate uh, in these two years that we're in now, and times and visibility. And I, and I just see how it's where we take something and conflate it, you know? It's like we want it to mean something. Right? That's what I, I'm seeing, is that we want it to mean something. And so we'll create it. Why? Because we want the excitement. We want that sensational kind of sense that God's doing something or that we're living in a significant time. You know, Yeshua just said, watch and pray. You know, it's really simple. We should, we should always, it, it shouldn't matter to us. If we're obedient to to Yeshua's instructions to be vigilant, to be, you know, watchful and prayerful. And, you know, we, we take to heart his teaching about the, um, the servant whose master tarries. And so he, he gets lazy and he says, therefore, I'm just, oh, you know, I'll start mistreating, you know, other people and stuff like that. It's going to be like a thief in the night. You know, the person who was vigilant and watchful isn't going to be taken by surprise. Well, what, you know, this idea of the blood moons shouldn't affect our walk at all. They, they, they're of no consequence in terms of how we are called to walk and to be. So it seems to me that these are just distractions and excite, uh, things that people get worked up over. They sell a bunch of books. I bet I, I, I would suggest there are millions of dollars have been made oh, yeah. on blood moon um, was it just the other day someone was asking for money on TBN or oh, something? Oh, wait, wait. I got a clip for you. Oh, okay. I got a clip for anyway, you. I'm glad so, you. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, well, you, you can finish your thought by all means. No, I was just, that, that's the point. What I posted on the, the message board is just uh, what I found there. You know, in terms of Jerusalem time last year and this year, what they're going to be. They're not visible from Jerusalem. They're not visible from the land of Israel. And so it's just... There's details. Now, that's, this is a more precise detail than, say, placing the, the blood moon in the late 1400s with respect to the, you know, couple hundred year span of the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, but every, there's just so many things are overstated, you know, that, 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 that's almost like if you just listen to these guys, you'd believe all the, all the Jews in the world were in Spain and got kicked out, right? And that if in that that Christopher Columbus and his crew were mostly Jewish, right? And they came and founded America. And that the dates about the founding of around the founding of Israel, you know, all these things they're just overstated to try to get people. They're twisted. Yeah, it's like why why do we have to resort to this kind of sensationalism? I don't understand what the gain is. What is the gain in terms of edification for the body of Messiah? That's the bottom line. 
The bottom line is that love edifies, right? That's what we're taught. When we, when we keep the commandments, when we love God, right? The Shema and Vahavta Lurecha Kamoka, you love your neighbors yourself. That's a full-time effort. That's where our hearts need to be. And everything will work out from there. These other things seem to be distractions from that. And people get worked up. People who already aren't, you know, grounded, grounded in the scriptures are the ones that are eating this up, I, I would guess. Anyway, I'm going off a little. Ooh. But you're not, you're not worked up. I, the half went off. Well, I have the music, but uh, we'll, <laughs> no. we'll save it. Okay. Uh, anyway, we're so, so so. I didn't even know we were going to spend this much time on it. That's cool. I didn't either. But I there's one thing I got this this. Uh, okay, we we got an email from someone. They said there's this person on, and I never even heard of this website or this network. Maybe I'm behind the times. It's TCT. Is did Trinity Broadcasting Network become TCT? Do I not know? I don't know. Anyway, so TCT, she said, I'm watching this thing. They're using the blood moons. They're, you know, they're, they're raising money that, you know, it's like some telethon or whatever. They're raising money. This is, you know, this is horrible. You need to talk about this. I went and looked at it. It's this guy named Steve Muncy. I've never heard of him either, but apparently he's some big wig in the TV evangelist world. Um, This broadcast, if you need a good laugh, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude or anything like that, but if you need a good laugh, this is something you could watch. And uh, yeah. Um, so he's got, they have this huge studio and all the, all of the seats are pretty much empty. They got two rows of about four people per row, right? Up in front. And they really won't like show you much more than that. And when they do, it's completely empty and no one's clapping for him. And so they keep putting this clap track in and then fading the clap track out so it doesn't sound right, which which is hilarious. Um, Anyway, and then, I mean, there's all sorts of different problems. First of all, this guy, within his, I I watched the first 30 minutes of this thing, unfortunately, but uh, he's talking about the blood moons the whole time. Within the first 30 minutes, he asks Toys R Us, Obama, and Vladimir Putin, to, if they're watching, to please donate money. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Okay. Toys R Us was watching. Is that like is a, is Toys R Us a person? No, he was. He was like, oh yeah. Well, he he got these red balls to okay. to show the blood moon, like to try to give you a visual of the blood moons. He's like, I just got these from I just got these from Toys R Us. So Toys R Us, if you're watching, please send money. Uh, please send a donation. <laughs> uh, like what are you talking about? So I had to wade through all of this to try to find a really, really good clip. Also, he says that uh, that Sukkot is, and this is I'm neither here nor there. Wait, he said, Sukkot. Yeah, he says Sukkot is. Uh, hey, 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 he says Sukkot. <laughs> he says that that oh. is uh, the atonement, which is actually Yom Kippur. For for those who might not know, Yom Kippur is actually the Day of Atonement, not Sukkot. Okay, but I figured that this was probably the best the best clip to give you, Rob. Uh, I thought that you would enjoy this probably the most. Listen to this. This actually has no rhyme or reason for our show, except for that I just thought it was too good to pass up. It is a minute and 47 seconds long. In a few days, there will be a third blood moon. Okay, let me, let me break it down. Let me break it down. In Acts, the second chapter, it says, <laughs> I will turn the moon to blood and hide the sun. And there will be vapor of smoke, which is nuclear. Has anybody 
noticed in the news, there's a lot of talk about nuclear. Nuclear? Did we not on television for the first time in the history of America have a prime minister from another country come in without the invitation of the president to express his concern about Iran and nuclear in the same verse? Well, you say it says vapor of smoke. Well, let, let, me, let me explain about vapor please, of smoke. Please explain. Vapor of smoke means, if you look it up, it means a mushroom. <laughs> means a mushroom. Vapor of smoke in the Bible means a mushroom. <laughs> Meaning when, when, when they dropped the bomb on Japan, it looked just like this. The vapor of smoke went up. It went up like a mushroom. And what he's talking about, which he's talking about nuclear disaster. Now, you're saying, is nuclear disaster coming? No, no, I didn't say that. What I'm saying is, is that something drastically in the talk of what's going on. And the next verse, I love the next verse. This will make everybody feel good. The next verse says, and they shall call upon the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. Meaning that what I'm saying to you is not to scare you about the end of the world as much as there is an outpouring of the power of God. Oh, there's the, there's the track. Let's do a fade out. Oh man, Adam. So says, it's a okay. See, he says vapor <laughs> means mushroom. He looked it up. Yeah, and, then, and, and look, Adam says, "What English translation is he reading?" And, and it says, "Look it up where." <laughs> oh man. Oh, I'm sorry, but if, if I don't, the lady who sent this into us, I mean, she, yeah, she was very upset about this, and rightly so. But at the same time, I'm not sure why she was watching this. I, I, I mean, honestly, if it wasn't for the show, I wouldn't have been able to stand two minutes of it. It was that bad. It was really bad. These are the people, and, you know, I'm sorry, people. You might think that we're mean, um, but I, I, if, if that's what you're listening to for, uh, you know, <laughs> for teachings, something is drastically wrong. But if we're mean, then... How rude! yeah, 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 yeah. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. Okay, let's move on. So, that concludes our Blood Moon segment. Um, what time are we, Well, who cares what time we're at? Uh, we're, we're having, about we're having too We're having too much fun. Okay, so... Uh, we got an email, another email. Actually, we've gotten several emails about this. We've, uh, one person said to me, I found out that some uh, people that I know are going to Monte Judah's outfit. And uh, those of you who might not know, Monte Judah, he's a teacher who, well, we're going to talk about him quite a bit here in a few seconds. But uh, he has basically said, come out in one of his newsletters saying that the book of Hebrews should not be in our Bibles. Okay, and so this person who wrote me was saying, you know, I had some questions about this, blah, blah, blah. And then another person wrote me and said, uh, one of my buddies is, is giving up on the book of Hebrews. What do I do? And he quoted this one specific verse. And I did some searching. I found a article. Who was the article by? Uh, you, you did the most of the work on this article. Who was the? Are you talking about Daniel Gregg or Monte Judah? Uh, Daniel Gregg. So that's the article that I found. That, but I think that most of our listeners are going to know Monte Judah 
as the real dude who is giving up on the book of Hebrews and, and really influencing people to give up on the book of Hebrews. Okay. Um, so Monty Judah came out in his September, October, 2005 newsletter saying that the book of Hebrews should not be in our Bibles. And that quote, I personally believe that the greater number of church churchmen have been misled by something put into the new Testament. That is the book of Hebrews. End quote. Why would we follow Monty Judah anyway? From Monty Judah's... Now, check this out. I did some searching, and I found some very interesting things. And I remember when this was going on, okay? This happened in, like, I don't know, 93, 94, something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe even later than that, 96, 97. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so 96. From Monty Judah's February 1996 newsletter, he writes, Okay, now, once again... I, I can I can fe- feel that we're going to get flack for this, but all I'm doing is reading his newsletter. Okay, this is out of his newsletter. This is out of Monty Judah's newsletter. So the question, this comes down to it's not even education, but is is Monty Judah qualified qualified to talk about the Book of Hebrews and whether or not it should be in our Bibles or not? Okay, this is from his 1996 uh, newsletter. He writes, "Quote after the Lord." instructed me to do so, I declared that the Middle East Peace Accord of 1993 started the 70th week of Israel. Therefore, I am want, uh, I'm warning others to look for specific events to occur in 1996 and 1997, consistent with the timeline and the center, uh, the center event of the seven-year period, the abomination of desolation. To that end, I am preparing and warning others that the great tribulation spoken of by Daniel and Yeshua will begin February, March of 1997. These dates were set by God when he started the 70th week. If what I say does not happen, then brand me as a false prophet. Listen to me no more and heap the ridicule on on to prevent others from making the same mistake. But I would remind you, in accordance with the scripture, not to despise a prophetic utterance until it has been proven false. I call for the testing of all prophets. I have made my message and its measurement clear. If the altar is not stopped in February, March of 1997 in Jerusalem, then throw me on the trash heap. That's Monty Judah. End quote. Wow. Was there a blood moon that year? (laughs) Oh, Oh my goodness. Okay, so... Uh, this right here, in terms of, is he qualified to even be teaching the Bible to other people? We need to post that. Is that on the internet? Could people find yes, that? Yes, it is. Okay. And I've posted links to it in our show notes. And he actually acknowledged, I mean, that's, yes, he doesn't and, dispute and, and, that he said those things. No. I mean, because he, he could just say, oh, I never said that. No, when he came, at, it was in his newsletters. Okay, so at, this is, and this is after, documented. After it didn't happen in March, February, this or in February, March of 97 after it didn't ha- happen he was thinking about kind of you know like maybe i shouldn't be teaching anymore okay and then he basically came out and said the lord wouldn't have started this ministry if he wanted me to stop it the lord started it some of the followers want me to some of my the people that support me still want me to keep going so since god's continuing to support the ministry that means that he wants it to be so i should keep teaching and a bunch of the people who follow him and people who follow Michael Rood, too. People, a lot of people don't realize that Michael Rood made false prophecies. Um, I was there for that one. Yeah, I that was there for that, I too. Wasn't a, I wasn't aware of Monty Jude at the time. I had heard of him, but I didn't know what he was teaching. Uh, this is still early Internet days in, in when right. I lived in Spokane in the mid-late 90s. But, but uh, Michael Rood 
did on the he went on the circuit. You know, he came around through Prophecy Club. Yep, and he made a couple rounds um, with nice video and music and all this kind of stuff. Nice uh, costumes that he wore. Yeah, he wore a cummerbund when I saw him in. in I think it was ninety eight. That guy knew how to. He knew how to to dress the part. No doubt, he looked like a priest. Anyway, so so Monty Judy keeps going, and uh, you know Grace uh, on the chat room says he's still actively uh, speaking against the Book of Hebrews, which I am aware of. Uh, so anyway, in terms of you know a lot of people who who still follow Monty Judah and Michael Rood for that matter say, oh well, he pr- repented of it, but th- this confuses me. If you are following Monty Judah, or if you are following Michael Rood, can you please show me? Anywhere in scripture where it says, if a false prophet falsely prophesies and he repents, accept him back and let him keep teaching. Is there any place in the Bible that it says that? I'm sorry, I just don't think there is. And so it it baffles, you know, what are we supposed to do with false prophets? You're not supposed to listen to them and you're not, and you're not supposed to fear them. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the one I, I, are you going to segue this over to uh, Greg's model of? Well, okay. My point with Monty Judah, because Monty Judah is the one who is really pushing all this uh, and really turning some heads uh, for people, uh, is that he's a false prophet. He shouldn't be listened to by anyone, uh, and he's not qualified to teach the Bible. So, if you are listening to Monty Judah, stop, stop it. Right. So the same guy who made such a big deal saying throw him on the trash heap if he's wrong is also telling us that we need to get rid of the book of Hebrews That's out right. of the Bible. But That's we're right. supposed to still not question that maybe this guy is a couple bricks short of a load. Exactly. Okay, so um, now let's go to Greg. So this Daniel Greg is a different gentleman who is also saying that we should uh, throw out the book of Hebrews. Now in, um, do I have that here? Well, I have it. What are you looking for, Caleb? Well, I was just looking for all the references uh, that he has. He's got uh, Daniel Gregg has a has a website where he it's called Torah Times, TorahTimes dot org, and he gives a huge, huge. Uh, he overwhelms people. Web page over what? Yeah, overwhelming proofs from his perspective of why Hebrews should not be. It should be part of the apocrypha. He says. Yeah. So, uh, and which is interesting, uh, these guys, tr- he, these yeah, guys try yeah. to, these guys try to make it out like the, like the book of Hebrews wasn't accepted as scripture until the 18 or 1900s. Not only that, Greg, Greg's claim to fame, I mean, his big book is he claims that he has solved the mystery of all biblical chronology. <laughs> okay. Hang on just a second. So Let's, if that's let- not sensational enough, he has all that. And, uh, <laughs> if, if somebody, here you go. Okay, look, Torah Resource right now is, is working on a, on a um, biblical calendar book, okay? And one thing we will not do at Torah Resource is come out and say that we've solved all biblical chronology. Michael Rood has done that. This Daniel Gregg has done that. If somebody comes out and says that they have, that they have solved all biblical chronology, uh, there should that's be... That's another... What's rule of that? That's one of our rules. Well, that's sensationalism. Just- yeah, just sensation, just a sensational claim. That's like a that wants to. That's a claim that wants to sell a book, you know. Um, but there are so many issues. I, I just spent some time. I spent about two hours just going through Greg's website. Generally, Daniel Greg G R E G G, 
Um, boy, he's he's zealous, right? I mean, he reminds me kind of like a, a Lou White, someone who has a little bit of education, uh, but then just enough to, to really be dangerous. Um, there are so many issues with this chronology that he doesn't even recognize. And we, uh, so we don't need to get into that. Maybe... Um, Maybe we could at some point, but I, I think today we were going to talk more about Hebrews, right? Yeah, okay, so the, here's the one thing I want to say. If I come to the scriptures like this, I believe that the scriptures are self-authenticating. They have been the scriptures since very early. It wasn't like some dude just showed up and was like, hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the, the apostolic scriptures together. These are in, these are out. That's not what happened. We've talked about the, the way that the canon has, was formed and whatnot. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it shows the divine hand, how it was accepted. It was accepted by different groups. Uh, Different books were tried and tested and whatnot. Uh, But see, his his claim, Greg's claim is that Satan deceived. Okay. Hey, hang on just a sec, just a sec. I come at the scriptures like this. I come at the scriptures saying, these are the scriptures. I've accepted the scriptures, okay? And they're God's word. And... When something seemingly contradicts, I don't say, oh, the book must be wrong. Let's get rid of John because he disagrees with the synoptic gospels. I don't do that. What I say is that I'm not understanding something. The fault is mine. It's not the scriptures. It's mine. And what this Daniel Gregg and what Monty Judah have done is they've come and they've said, oh, well, I can't figure out how this reconciles with itself. So it must be wrong. That's not the way to come at the scriptures, people. Okay, go ahead. Well, if, you know, there's like a couple different angles that we can talk about Greg specifically and his his uh, teachings that he's putting out there in books and on, on the internet. Um, but one of the claims is that he, he says, uh, I'm just reading this quote from his text, from his website. After reviewing this evidence, it should be no surprise that Satan took no shortcuts in his program to corrupt the scriptures. So he wants to to say that Satan has corrupted the scriptures. And so now we have to trust him to explain, you know, that Hebrews doesn't belong, right? It should have been cut out. Why? Because he gives us grounds on something he calls Gnosticism. So he keeps, if you read his, his page, which takes a long time, it's very long. It's huge. Ab- about the book of Hebrews, he says he's proving everything. He says, I'm proving that Hebrews doesn't belong. But in his proving, he keeps talking about Gnostic teachings of the day. Say this, the Gnostic belief that, 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 that. The Gnostics taught this or that. But he never cites sources. He's created a religion called Gnosticism in his imagination. He never cites any Gnostic text to support the, what he's trying to, to argue. And the problem is he's going to have is that the sources that the scholars of the 1900s, early 1900s, created this idea of Gnosticism, which why one of my teachers, Michael Allen Williams, wrote a really good book. It's called Dismantling the Dubious Category of Gnosticism. Um, anyway, is that there's this, there was this religion then, but 
what Greg doesn't realize, even if he goes to try to cite sources from Nag Hammadi texts or, you know, what have you, they're going to be like third century or later. And he's going to try to import those back to the first century to make this argument. That's one problem, is that he's invented a religion called Gnosticism and that there, he wants to say that early Christians in the first century were influenced by this other religion called Gnosticism and that the book of Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews, is a Gnostic text. So that's one of his assumptions that he brings to his argument, but he never demonstrates. He gives no proof for it. It's his starting point. And that's one of his real weak places. I mean, you, you pull on that and the ground falls out uh, underneath everything he's saying. Another issue is that he conflates information. Um, and I think he doesn't have a, a strong grasp of historical method. Um, I think what do you a mean lot of his work was done before the Dead Sea Scrolls were published. So some of his uh, phrases that he said, he'll, he'll say, you can't use the Mishnah. You know, he'll, he'll rightly say that using rabbinic texts too much, you know, or uh, without, you know, uncritically to give background to the first century, that's anachronistic. He'll say that. But what he didn't have uh, access to, apparently, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's places where, yeah, we'll find Jewish cultural things in the rabbinic writings, but if we also find them in the Qumran text, Dead Sea Scrolls, and elsewhere, we know that it had continuity into, you know, in the first century and beyond. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't have, and so his understanding of Jewish culture in the first century is very, very lacking. He doesn't understand the, the Septuagint and the other Greek Jewish texts that were part of the larger Jewish world in Greek speaking diaspora. Um, there's, there's just a lot of problems. But what he does, he, he says there are like five or six or seven places in the, the Epistle of Hebrews that are just wrong factually. Yeah, that they are contrary to fact, and so those are the ones that I spent most of the time trying to understand what his what his point was because it's just there's just too much. Um, but it, here's one of the I'll give you an example. Um, he in two places he says the 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 Epistle of Hebrews in chapter seven twenty seven and in ten eleven it says it contradicts the the idea of the Torah having a daily sin offering. So in other words, where it says uh, day offered daily, he says that that must mean the tamid offering, which is the lamb in the morning and the lamb at night, and that, there, and that that was a sin offering. That's what Greg is assuming. So Greg is assuming that, that the author, the epistle of Hebrews, is making the, the assertion that the tamid, the lamb at morning and at night, every day, Hang on just a second. Let's read it real quick. Uh, okay. I, I just got it here. It's uh, 727. Who does not need the daily, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Right. I right. think that's so pretty straightforward. that the daily there must mean that the epistle, the author of Hebrews is associating the tamid, which means 
Tamid doesn't mean daily. It means uh, always. Um, that that was understood by the, the author of Hebrews as a type of sin offering, when in fact it's not. In the Torah, it's called olat tamid, a, a burnt offering that is continual, a continual burnt offering. Lamb in the morning, lamb at night, you know, on and on and on. Um, and I think that he's missing, I think that Greg misses the point here, um, when in fact the the priestly duties and, and, and con- are every day points to Yom Kippur. The, the, the priests are always watching and praying because they are always vigilant against their own sin and for the sins of the people because the accountability for sin is the is the ever-present reality for the priests. Because it's on them, right? If, if you look, it, it says that they bear the, the guilt of the sanctuary in Numbers 18. That's the Aaron and his sons bear the guilt of the sanctuary. And they eat the meat of the sin offerings. Not only that, in Leviticus 4, the first thing, when it starts talking, you know, Leviticus starts out with the, the olah, right? The burnt mm-hmm. offerings. It talks about the other kinds of offerings that are voluntary. But then it gets into Leviticus 4. It starts talking about sin offerings. The first sin offering defined is that of the, the priest. If a priest sins, he has to do an offering. And then it goes to the people. If the people sin, they have to bring an offering. I think Greg is imagining that there were days... There were days where no one ever that there were no sin offerings. I I guess he's a man. I don't. I never saw where he comes out and says that. But it seems that uh, that is what what uh, Greg is assuming that there were days where there were never a sin offering. But it doesn't even matter. That that's one side to this. The other is this phrase in Hebrew called da- daily that we see there in in this passage. Kathimeron uh, doesn't doesn't mean only that it means each and every day. It just means according to the day. For example, in the Septuagint, Kathimeron is used in number seven, numbers chapter seven, where each of the, remember that we had the, the leader of each of the tribes, they come in with the dedication of the altar and they offer, you know, numbers gives these real intricate details of everything they brought. It's just each, it says according to the day, each daily I guess we could translate. But it wasn't every single day. It just meant according to the, the demand of the day. Um, this, I hope this isn't getting too heady for people. But uh, Greg makes a, a false assumption in his uh, effort to use this word daily in 727 and again in Hebrews 1011 as a contrary to fact. Um, the one that I really want to get to, and the one that we've been, the, the initial email was asking about Hebrews 9, 3, and 4. And my father has done, uh, this is the one that Monty Judah hits home. Like, this is like his bread and butter to get rid of the book of Hebrews, is Hebrews 9, 3, and 4. Um, and, well, hang on, let me get there. First of all, okay, so I'm going to set you up. There are places in the Epistle to Hebrews where we're given information that we're not given in the Tanakh. Right? I mean, that's just, that's just generally true. Um, 
you know, for example, Isaac is a type of resurrection in chapter 11. We're not given that in Tanakh. When it talks about a prophet being sawed in two in chapter 11, which some say was probably Isaiah, that's not given in Tanakh. How can we, we can't prove that. So then is, 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 uh, so, so there's details like this. He tells us in chapter nine that the, the jar that held the manna was made, was golden. So it was maybe a jar, maybe an earthen vessel covered in gold, or maybe it was all gold. Torah, Tanakh never tells us that. So just because we get this type of information, it says, it talks about Moses and, uh, in his time in Egypt, and he didn't despise uh, association with Messiah. We're not told that in the, in the Tanakh. So what do you think it is? Yeah, I mean, so my point is that Hebrews is giving us all sorts of insight. I think Hebrews was written by someone who understood very clearly the priest. I think it was probably written by someone who was a priest. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of people who believe that. I, 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 I tend mean, to I tend to agree with very, you. They're thinking very much in in detail in terms of the priesthood and the and the Mishkan. And they even and the author even tells us in chapter nine of these things we cannot discuss in detail right now. In other words, he's giving a quick synopsis to make a bigger point. And he I think specifically it's a, tells us, we're, I'm not going to get into detail. I think it's interesting that he goes back to the, to the Mishkan and not to the temple. Anyway, okay, so uh, let me read here. Uh, get back to it. Sorry, I'm keeping my eye on the chat room, well, too. Right. Thanks, everybody in the chat room, for, uh, for keeping the discussion lively. We've had some interesting comments here. Um, so in uh, Hebrews 9, 3, and 4, this is, this is really the one that I want to talk about with you. Uh, it says, and I'm reading now to the NASB. It says, behind the second veil... There was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Okay. Uh, verse 4. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. So the main point that uh, Ju- Monty Judah makes is, is this, uh, what is it? The altar of incense? Is that his main point? The alt- there is no pan of uh, you know altar of incense or whatever. No, he says that that it doesn't belong. That the altar of incense belongs is out not in the holy, holy of holies. holies. It's in the it's in the holy place, not the holy of holies. Right. Okay. But this word could also mean just golden censer, which went in to the holy of holies on Yom Kippur. And of course, Yom Kippur is the day that is the day that represents, you know atonement but each day points to yom kippur all all the services of the year in the in the priesthood you know and their offering of blood ultimately comes to this time where where the high priest has to go in to the holy of holies and uh, yeah so the torah does the torah use this word for altar that, or the word that the Septuagint does, yeah, Sept- it uses the word. It can mean censer. So in the in the Septuagint, it, this word is used as the censer that goes into the Holy of Holies. Yes. So in yeah. other words, Monty Judah and this uh, Daniel Greg guy, they just they're not doing due diligence, right? You know, I'll, I'll tell you. I said that the blood moon thing doesn't tick me off. This ticks me off. When people start like, "Hey, let's throw out parts of the Bible," that's an attack. 
from the evil one. This is how the, I mean, you know, this is exactly how Christians and believers are starting to give up on God in general is because they start saying, oh, well, exactly. the, the, the Torah is not anymore. So, you know, that whole homosexuality thing, you know, it also says you can't eat shrimp. So, you know, let's throw that out. And then it's, oh, well, you know, the book of Hebrews, let's get rid of that. And then it's, oh, well, you know, John disagrees with uh, with uh, the, the synoptic gospels on on the, uh, the uh, passion account. So let's get rid of that. It, you know, the epistle of Hebrews, it gives the longest continuous citation of a Tanakh verse, mm-hmm. Jeremiah 31, yeah. in all the apostolic writings. In Hebrews chapter 8, we have the longest citation of Tanakh. Not only that, in chapter 11, we have we see clearly that this author understood salvation by faith, mm-hmm. right? And he, under, he had a comprehensive knowledge of salvation history all the way back to Abel. And he shows how faith meant something in their life. It, they, they acted on their faith. In other words, there were works associated with faith. For example, in the epistle to uh, the epistle of Yaakov, the epistle of James, James talks about uh, faith without works, but then he talks about Abraham and Rahab as two examples of someone who had faith that produced specific works. Well, guess what? The same things that Yaakov mentions, Abraham and Rahab, the epistle to Hebrews mentions in chapters eleven. In chapter eleven, um, that it is so strange. That uh, that this would be seen as a quote gnostic type of text because the Torah of Moses is is it says those who uh, transgress the Torah of Moses died at the at two or three witnesses. It affirms the validity of the Torah of Moses. Now, it, what what this person doesn't understand is because he Greg comes and says, oh, gnostics, whatever that means believed that people had a spirit and a body and they were completely separate and all you had to worry about the spirit and the body was bad. But that is not, that's not the way the, the epistle to Hebrews uh, explains anything about Scripture. It's talking about Yeshua as a priest. Is Greg According trying- to the order of Melchizedek, which is, a, which is a scripture that Yeshua himself cites, Psalm 110. Is Greg trying to suggest that the writer of the Hebrews was Gnostic? Yeah, or that he was uh, trying that he was capitulating to Gnosticism. I'm glad you. I'm glad you read uh, this. Would have ticked me off the, this article. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to come at things a lot more lovingly and a lot more. Uh, you know, let's have some brotherly love kind of a approach to things. But some things, like when people attack the 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 word of God, when people attack the, you know, the Messiah and do so through the deity, of the, you know, trying to get rid of the deity, of the Messiah, all these things, th- those kind of things really kind of get under my skin. I'm working on it, but, uh, okay. So basically what you're saying is, is that, and my father has done work on this too. So my father in our show notes, you can, uh, and just on Torah resource, just go to Torah resource under community. You can find my father's, uh, study on the book of Hebrews. Which is still going on, by the way. But uh, he's done work on this, too. So what you're telling me is that in uh, Hebrews 9, 4, this altar of incense, the word in the Septuagint, the Greek word in the Septuagint, is also translated as censor. 
Yes. And then there's two, but this is, that's not the only point that Greg wants to take issue with here. In 9.4, he says that Aaron's rod is misplaced and the pot of manna is misplaced. As a factual, these are factual errors, says Daniel Gregg, that the epistle the Hebrew makes. And then if this, the person who wrote this knew anything about the Torah in any detail, they would not have made this error. And the point is, in, in Numbers, chapter 17, it says, and place the rod of Aaron, lifnei ha'edut, lemishmeret, which means to replace the mate aharon, that's the rod of Aaron, lifnei ha'edut, before the testimony, which is the tablets. It's not, the Aron, not before the aharon, not before the ark, but before the tablets. That's what the testimony is. And then it says the same thing in Exodus 16, verse 34. Aaron placed the jar of manna, lifnei ha'edut, the mishmaret, the same phrase. So we have this unique phrase for the pot of manna and Aaron's rod, lifnei ha'edut. It's the only time we get that phrase. Once with the, we get it, we get it with the rod of manna, or a rod of Aaron, that budded, and the pot of manna. But what, what uh, Greg says, that that means in front of the ark, not in the ark. Because he's saying that we, that we have to read uh, Hebrews 9.4 to say, in which, in other words, that Hebrews 9.4 says that these things were in the ark is factually wrong. Doesn't, well, it, doesn't it sound like he's just... I mean, it sounds like he's coming. Just he, grabbing things. He's, he, he's, he's against. And well, wait a minute. Here's the thing. But he, what he does, any, and I'm reading from his work now on his article on this uh, passage. Any final doubt as to the meaning of the words before the testimony is removed by the following text. And he cites <laughs> Exodus 27:21, in the tabernacle of the congregation, uh, without the veil, which is before the testimony. And he takes it, oh, we have this phrase, before the testimony, just like we have it here and here. But the Hebrew is a different word altogether. But he's equating it because it's the same in his English translation. You see what I mean? So he, he, he doesn't look at the actual Hebrew to see that the Hebrew is different there. That there's a unique Hebrew phrase used only for the rod of Aaron and for the pot of manna. And this Exodus 27, 21 has different Hebrew construction, it doesn't apply. But he's apparently not looking at the Hebrew here. He's looking at English translations that use the same prepositions. And so he equates them. But it sounds to me like he's coming at the text, he's coming at the at the text of Hebrews with a preconceived notion that it's not scripture already. Because it looks exactly. it looks that's, like he's, And that's the point here. There is if someone's heart is bent against the epistle to the Hebrews, there's nothing we we can't do anything about it. I mean, what, only God can, can change that. I think this guy is convinced. There's nothing anybody's going to say that's going to change this guy's mind. I think challenge to saying, look, man, you, have, you haven't proved to, to meet him in his, in his world of rationality and proof. You have to say, look, man, you need to, you're, you keep talking about Gnostic religion and Gnostic beliefs, but you have, and you're telling your readers what they are but you're not giving them any sources. We're just supposed to take your word for it. Yeah. So you know, he's not quoting sources. He's not giving it. He's not citing any Gnostic texts or what time frame they were written in. He's not demonstrating this 
the, that this big lever fulcrum that he's using to to pry Hebrews out of the canon, he's not telling us the sources, and he's not giving us his proof that even has a fulcrum and a lever that can do this. And his he is already suspect because he doesn't understand the methodology that uses other Jewish sources, particularly with his chronology issues. Oh, golly, his chronology is so gone. For example, he believes Yeshua rose on the morning of the Shabbat. What? On a, on a Shabbat <laughs> morning, yeah. So where it says, Miaton Sabaton, in like Matthew 28, one, on uh, one of the Sabbath, or first of the Sabbath of the week, he says that means on the first Sabbath of of the counting of the Omer, I think is where he, but he says it's a weekly Shabbat in the morning is when Yeshua rose. So that's the women came to the tomb on a, on Sabbath morning rather than on what we would say a Sunday morning. And he says, because there was a mistake and, and Jews never used this way to count days of the week. Well, he, here again, he's looking and he says, you can't use the rabbis because even though the rabbis use that, he says, you can't use the rabbis because it's later. But he, does, he never looks at the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have Dead Sea Scrolls all over the place using um, first day of the week, second day of the week, and using Shabbat as the meaning week. First of the Shabbat, second of the Shabbat, fifth of the Shabbat, right? And then the seventh is, is the Shabbat. He, he, he never looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So his whole chronology crumbles um, because he's not using good method. But he's built a huge structure this guy's built a huge house on sand. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, so basically, the it, point is, is if you uh, if you are following Monty Judah, or if you've found Daniel Gregg's article uh, not to be trusted. Um. So yeah, are, is that all you got, or you want? Is there anything else you want to bring up, Rob? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he just. It, Basically, Greg has solved all the calendar problems and <laughs> and has has demonstrated to us clearly that the Epistle of Hebrews belongs with the rest of the Apocrypha. I'm and sorry. That it was <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you if you look if you're studying yourself, oh Yeshua, he says Yeshua didn't eat Passover either. Yeshua ate the Last Supper on the 13th. There's a lot of people who believe that, and yeah. uh, I think we'll all actually talk about that next week. So. Um, yeah, if if you're doing studies yourself, or if you come across somebody who says that the Book of Hebrews should not be in the canon, then please stop and uh, really do some research. Because what's funny here, because Greg, here's one other thing. Greg also says that when Yeshua said, "This is the blood of the covenant," it was the third cup of the meal. <laughs> so where does he? How does he? On what basis does he say that this is a third cup of the meal? Yeah, if it's not a if it, if he doesn't if he's not resorting to other you know later rabbinic uh, pictures of the of, of the, the Passover, Passover Seder, Seder, yeah, you know we don't have that in Tanakh, but yet Daniel's teaching that the that the Last Supper he's talking about the third cup of the meal, but then he says it's on a it was on a the thirteenth, so was it a was it a Passover or not? You know, there's just so many issues that he's not using his own. Uh, he has, he probably hasn't anybody check up on any of these things because he seems to have his books on has had a couple editions, uh, newer editions come out. In other words, he's continually refining uh, his work. 
Okay, well, uh, I hope this has opened some eyes and uh, maybe shed some light on things for some people. You know, the one bad thing, the one difficult thing about going live is, and I've talked about this with Gary and with Rob, is our end music. Because it's difficult, it's going to be a, it's going to be a timing issue. So bear with me, this might not work out the way we want it to. We're going to try to do this right though, okay? Uh, we're going to try to orchestrate this all well. So here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope, I hope that this has shed some light on, uh, on uh, things for people. Uh, if you're all about the blood moons, okay, I guess we'll all just have to see, right? We'll all just have to hang in there and find out. Um, but big thanks to everyone in the chat room. It's been fun watching you all talk and uh, get some feedback from you guys. Uh, so yeah, thank you to you guys. If you want a sticker, then please email me chag at torresource.com. If you want to make comments about anything, you can do so on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Rob and Caleb show. And you can also uh, email us personally, chag at torresource.com are vanhoff at torresource.com. Don't get snookered by people who say it shouldn't be in the Bible. <laughs>